This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're midway through chapter 8. After finishing his account of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, Matthew has turned his attention to the power that Jesus displayed. Many Old Testament prophecies foretold this kind of power the true Messiah would demonstrate on his arrival. We've seen Jesus' power over disease. Now we'll see Jesus' power over nature. But we'll soon discover it's not just the natural world that responds to God's will. The pressures of life, the tragedies we encounter, the everyday stressors we feel are all subject to the power of Jesus Christ. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So let's read verses 18 through verse 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And again, this is the Sea of Galilee, actually the Lake of Gennesaret. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep, and they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So let's look at the first scene. The author highlights for us the demands of discipleship, verses 18 through 22, the demands of discipleship. We have two dialogues here that Jesus has with would-be followers or people who are interested in Jesus Christ. These guys express interest in following the man they suspect to be the Jewish Messiah, but Jesus shatters their expectation by articulating the demands of discipleship. I want you to know that. He shatters their expectation, their preconceived expectation of what it means to follow Christ. And presumably neither one of them was willing to embrace the sacrifice required of subjects of the kingdom of heaven. And remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, because of the theme of the book is to present Jesus Christ as the King of, the, of kings, the King of the Jews, we're calling believers the subjects of the kingdom of heaven. Now Luke records the same account here in Luke 9, verses 51 through 62, and places this particular encounter after the calming of the storm. And the reason for that, church, is remember, Matthew is not concerned with chronology, but theme. The first interaction between Jesus and an interested follower reveals the cost of following Christ. There is a cost, and Jesus is not shy about that. He's not embarrassed so this first guy to approach him broke with tradition because he's a scribe. The Bible says he's a scribe. He broke with tradition and risked opposition from his fellow scribes. And the reason we know that is because by this time, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' popularity with the local religious leaders has been reduced drastically after he calls them hypocrites, that their righteousness is substandard. 
So this guy is risking being shunned by his peers. But nevertheless, he swears superficial allegiance to Christ. He calls them teacher. The word that he uses is didaskalos in the original, from which we get the word didactic. Same idea of the word rabbi, a little, little closer in semantical range here. But the point is, he thought he would earn points with this teacher. He said, well, I'm going to swear allegiance to this man who possibly is the Messiah, and I'm going to tell him that I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. The problem is, church, he was a little too quick to say that because he did not count the cost. Evidently, he did not think through the implications of his promise. And the answer he heard must have disappointed him greatly and the original readers of the Gospel of Matthew because clearly Jesus expects undivided, non-hypocritical allegiance from subjects of the kingdom of heaven. But he also knows the heart of potential followers. And that is the point here that Matthew wants us to see. Christ addresses the real issue in this guy's heart. You are being too quick to swear allegiance to me, so let me give you a little bit of information. There is a cost in following me. Now, church, think about this. Any other teacher would have welcomed such an enthusiastic loyalty and would actually hesitate to state the obvious, to present the hard but precious truth. Following Jesus demands sacrifices. Although salvation is for free, is a free gift of God, the Bible says very clearly, Romans 6, verse 23, salvation is a free gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8, salvation is a free gift of God, but you may lose your life when you come to Christ. Certainly the case in many parts of the world. In our case, so far we've only lost comfort, right? But the point is, discipleship costs believers everything. And Jesus wants everybody to know, and Matthew wants his readers to know. We must back up our profession of faith in Christ with an understanding of this truth and the willingness to go wherever he sends, whatever the cost. Now, this is not a new concept for Matthew's readers. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ clarifies that members of the kingdom of heaven should sacrifice their own philosophies concerning conflict resolution, for example. Do you remember that? There is the human philosophy of conflict resolution, and there is the biblical philosophy of conflict resolution. And Jesus presents God's way of doing conflict resolution, which involves what? Humility involves the ability to forgive, and that's an example of that. So genuine, non-hypocritical devotion demands complete surrender to God. And Jesus Christ states this in no uncertain terms. And he illustrates this truth by giving this teacher of the law. Remember, scribes were teachers of the law because they copied manuscripts all day long. So Jesus gives him a picture that is so mundane that is impossible to miss. The foxes have holes, for example. He's, he's drawing from the animal kingdom, saying, let me, give you, let me illustrate the truth here. And he follows it up with the expression, the son of man. Circle that expression in your Bible, because that's the first time you hear that expression in the New Testament. And that is not necessarily speaking about the humanity of Christ as much as talking about his messianic title, because that's what he's all about. That's what Matthew is all about. He wants to present Jesus as the Messiah, so he quotes Jesus as identifying himself as the Son of Man. The title confirmed the scribe's suspicion. He had found the long-awaited king of the Jews, the Messiah. And this prospect follower of Jesus Christ would have remembered Daniel's vision, for example, in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, verse 13, because presumably he copied the law all day long. And that passage reads this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
So the guy immediately associated that teacher that he referred to, to whom he swore allegiance, with the Son of Man, with the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. So his, his suspicions are confirmed. That is the Messiah. He identifies himself as the Messiah in the context of illustrating the truth of the cost of following the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, however excited he may have been, his willingness to follow Christ comes to a frustrating halt after the revelation that at that moment, at that very moment, the Son of Man would have to endure hardship before returning to glory. You see, he was about his father's business, like he says, but in the meantime, between that time and saving undeserving sinners, he would have to endure hardship. If you're willing to follow Christ, then you're willing to endure hardship with him. And that's the point. He will hang on a cross before sitting on the throne. That's what he's saying. Now, his journey to save undeserving sinners did not include the convenience of an established home. That's what he's talking about. My journey between now and going to the cross in order to pay the penalty of sin to save sinners does not include the comfort of an established home. This reality must have disappointed this guy greatly. And disappointment is a common response when modern-day prospect followers of Christ realize that hardship is inevitable if you want to identify with the suffering servant. By the way, that is the reason that Matthew quotes that passage in verse 17 of Matthew 8. He's quoting Isaiah 53:4 to identify the majestic Savior as the suffering servant. Well, he requires few of us today to give up the stability of our homes. We must be willing to relinquish comforts we hold so tightly in order to follow him. Now, again, I'm talking about comforts, for example, such as social acceptance. We must be willing to give that up if we're going to follow Jesus Christ closely. If we want to identify with the suffering servant, who is the majestic Savior, the King of Kings, we must be willing to give up temporarily some comforts, such as social acceptance. Live by the truth of this book and there's a price on your head. But let me give you some encouragement from Scripture, from the Word of God. Listen to Paul's language here when he's addressing a young man overwhelmed with the pressures of ministry. This guy, Timothy, was so discouraged by the hardship of ministry. He was ready to call it quits. He was ready to throw in the towel. But Paul tells him some very powerful words of encouragement. It's all in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Now verse 7, he says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And in verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And in verse 14, he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 3, he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And that's a perfect illustration, church, of who we are in Christ. We are soldiers of Christ. God has not called us to endure vacation here on earth. He has plenty of work for us to do while we are here. We'll have eternity to enjoy when we get to heaven. But in between now and the day he calls us home, we are soldiers of Christ. And we should expect hardship. We should expect difficulty in following Christ, whether it's physical, whether it's from the outside, whether it's from the inside, discouragement, sorrow, grief, loss because of the cross, because that's what he expects. And scripture is very clear about that. Scripture doesn't hide the truth. And what a lovely truth. God requires temporary losses 
from his people from time to time. But church, let me ask you this. Can you think of a higher honor than to be identified with the one who lost everything for you and for me to save undeserving sinners? Can you think of a higher honor than to represent the one who is the lover of your soul? Is any sacrifice too great for us to honor our majestic Savior? I don't think so. So the point of this entire scene, this entire dialogue that Matthew wants us to know, that God wants us to know through the revealed Word of God is this, count the cost. Count the cost before you affirm identification with Christ. Now here's another guy who rushed to make a similar statement, and we identify, we love this guy. When Jesus told the disciples all of them would fall away because of his upcoming arrest, Peter, oh, good old Peter, he says this, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And we know how that story ended, do we not? Well, the story doesn't end with his denial of Christ three times. Read the book of Acts and see the courageous Peter in the book of Acts after that, that experience, after that temporary failure to see a man filled with the Holy Spirit who was willing to go to jail for his Lord. And he is the ultimate testimony of God's power to transform. Don't ever doubt God's power to transform a person. Just look at the life of Peter. So that's the first interaction here that Jesus had with a prospect follower there, a would-be disciple. But let's look at the other demand of discipleship. The first one is the cost of following Christ. But the second dialogue that Jesus has with a man gives us the priority of following Christ. And that's in verse 21 through 22. So interestingly here, Matthew clarifies that this guy was a disciple. Did you notice that? He says another disciple came to him to dialogue with him. I want you to know, church, that this doesn't automatically place this man into the kingdom of heaven. The reason we know that is because Luke observes that this man was clearly not yet a follower of Christ. How do we know that? Because Jesus says to him, according to Luke 9, verse 59, follow me. That means he wasn't following. So Jesus says, you follow me. Perhaps he was more like an admirer, like many people today. People who say, oh, I love the teachings of Jesus Christ, but I pick and choose. The uncomfortable teachings of Christ, I reject. I embrace the truth that I'm comfortable with, but I reject the truths that are hard. For example, pick up your cross and follow me. Unless you are willing to give up family relationships, you're not worthy to follow me. Oh, no. I don't want that, many people say today, but they, they are really to embrace the teachings of Christ with which they are comfortable, like love your neighbor and so forth. At first glance, I want you to note that the request from this would-be follower seems noble, right? Well, I'm, I need to bury my father. It seems a noble request, and the response from Christ is somewhat unreasonable. After all, what's wrong with allowing the man to attend his father's funeral? But church, I want you to know that's not what's going on here. Jesus would not have forbidden this man to attend a memorial service for his father, especially if he was the oldest one, because this was Jewish tradition. The oldest son had the responsibility of attending to the funeral of the father because he would be inheriting everything, obviously. So that's not what's going on here. I want you to know. Instead, Jesus, the majestic Savior, is responding to a common figure of speech, which would indicate that this guy was not ready to follow Christ at that moment. So this is what this pseudo-disciple really meant. Allow me to wait until my father dies so I can finally serve you. Allow me to wait until my father dies so I can receive my inheritance. Then, Lord, I will be ready to follow you. I will be better equipped to follow you. That's what he's saying. So he is not on his way to his father's funeral. He is asking Jesus Christ to wait until he feels like he's ready. Nothing can be further from the discipleship that Christ expects from his followers. This man passively declined Christ's command. 
by delaying possibly for years his entrance into the kingdom. He might as well have told Jesus, your timing is off. I have a better schedule. Wait, I'm going to wait until I am ready. I'm going to call the shots here. I wonder, church, if anyone here, like this man, has been postponing the call to repent and come to Christ. Because this is what this is. Now, you may think you have all the time in the world after you accomplish certain goals, after you retire or whatever. But really, my friend, you are playing Russian roulette with your eternal destiny every time you decline the call to come to Jesus Christ. All of us here, church, we are only a breath away from eternity. And that's the point that Jesus is saying. Allow the dead to bury the dead. Follow me now. But here's what else the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is the opposite of what happened with this man here. That man hardened his heart because he didn't feel like it was the proper timing. Again, tragically, we have no indication that this man came to Christ or, or decided to follow him. We can only hope that he did. But I want you to know something else here. Observe with me the unusual answer that Christ gives. Gives us an impossible proposition. How can a dead person bury another dead person? What is he talking about? Obviously, church, dead people don't do anything. Let's reason together. Dead people only decompose. They do nothing. They decompose and they stink. So what Jesus is doing is saying here, allow the spiritually dead people go about their own business and bury people if they have to. And he points out that even a noble cause... And that's the lesson that we need to learn here at church from this. Even a noble cause, such as waiting to receive an inheritance, should not take precedence over responding to the call of Christ immediately. Immediately. Not later. Not tomorrow. Immediately. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The time to become born again, church, is now. Once again, church, Luke's parallel account of this event sheds light into the whole thing. According to Luke, the physician, Jesus added the following instructions. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Let me read that again. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, when we harmonize the two accounts, Matthew's and Luke's, we have a complete picture of this dialogue. The very words of Jesus to this man was this. Follow me. Allow the dead to bury their own dead, and as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So church, what is the lesson here? I'm going to ask you a question. I really, this is not a rhetorical question. I really need an answer from you, okay? In light of this, church, when is the appropriate time to proclaim the kingdom of God? Now, not tomorrow, not next month, not next week. The time is not after you bury your father. The time is not tomorrow, whenever you feel like it. We are not in a position, church, to determine a timetable to follow Jesus. That is the pinnacle of arrogance and pride. We are not in a position to tell Christ, I will get to your business, Jesus, after I'm done with my own business here. We are not in a position to do that. He says it clearly, follow me now. There's another conclusion here, church. According to the full answer we heard from Jesus here, the harmonized account between Luke and Matthew's gospel, unless... You are proclaiming the kingdom of God you are not following, but merely watching everybody else do the work. Did you hear that? Proclaiming, the term that Luke uses, means to announce, to utter. It means to make known publicly, to declare everywhere like a herald. And church, that is our job. Our job is to proclaim the kingdom everywhere, school, work, wherever you go. So 
We must do it, and we must do it now. Don't wait until you retire, my friend. Don't wait for the stars to align. Don't wait until you're fully funded. Don't wait until the message becomes popular. It'll never happen. And certainly don't wait for it to become less dangerous. It will not happen. Every day that goes by, it becomes more and more dangerous to announce the kingdom of God, my friends. Why? Because that is not a popular message that the world wants to hear. So it'll never be less dangerous. It will not happen. And of course, church, we need to understand something, another truth here. Fulfilling the priority of discipleship, which is telling other people about Jesus Christ, it doesn't happen naturally. Your flesh will never prompt you to witness to somebody. Believe me. Your flesh will always tell you, well, go, go, go rest. Go serve yourself. Go, go do whatever feels right. Your flesh will always crave something less demanding. You need divine intervention. Particularly, we need faith. We need to exercise our faith in order to do that, which takes us to the next scene here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. After the demands of discipleship, I want you to see in the second scene here the discipline of discipleship. And that's the miracle that Jesus performs here by calming the storm. See, the first scene was preparation. And I want you to see the contrast in the scene. Don't miss this, okay? The contrast is this. Matthew introduces the readers now to people who actually followed Christ. If in the first scene we have at least two people who declined to follow Christ because of the demands of discipleship, now we have people who actually followed Christ, knowing full well the demands of discipleship. They were in for the greatest faith lesson of their life. And so are we now. Not too long after embarking on the boats, they found themselves in a predicament. The word that Matthew uses here to describe this storm was the word mega in Greek, which means this was not uh, just some high winds or anything. This is a mega storm. This is something beyond what they've ever seen before. The other synoptic gospels provide additional details. Luke 8 verse 28 says this, A fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. You see, once again, the Bible doesn't hide the fact that following Christ may put you in danger sometimes, my friends. In the meantime, listen, the irony of this. In the meantime, Jesus took a nap. By pointing this out, that Jesus napped on the boat, Matthew wants his readers to know the humanity of the majestic Savior before he demonstrates his divinity. Do you see that? He's telling this is the Jewish Messiah. He is God and he is man at the same time. He's fully God, fully man, united into the one person, the person Jesus Christ. And to demonstrate that, he says, Jesus Christ napped on the boat because he was tired. Uh, you, you can only explain that. How can someone sleep in such a tumultuous situation here? can only be explained by extreme fatigue. The disciples did what you and I would have done. And they uttered the most effective prayer anyone can utter the first part of their prayer. Save me, Lord. That's the most important prayer anyone will utter. Now, the second half of that prayer reveals a misconception of reality. Mark quotes them as saying this in Mark 4, verse 38. Do you not care that we are perishing? See, that's untrue. That's not correct. That's a misconception of reality. Why do we know that? Because in the scenes before that in the Gospel of Matthew, we see very clearly that Jesus cares about people. He heals them. He cares about people. So there's a, do you not care that we are perishing? That's, that's someone who is in distress. Those are the words of somebody who is anxious, who is misreading the entire crisis here, who is making things bigger than they really are. 
Now, misconception of reality is not uncommon for all of us in a moment of crisis. When we resent God for putting us through hardship, we fail to learn the lessons of faith that he wants us to learn. And what a practical lesson the disciples learned here. And all the while, he's teaching the lesson. He is present with us in the crisis. What a practical lesson. And listen to this. If you need more guarantee, write down Matthew 28, verse 20. I am with you always. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. More precisely, church, where is Christ? He's not just with us. He is in us. Paul says this in Colossians 1, verse 27. If you are a believer in Christ, he lives in you. And that is the hope of glory, Paul says. So you don't have to look very far. He lives in you if you are a believer in Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Based on this reality, we should look at our storms through the eyes of faith. That is the lesson here. That's what we learned from Jesus' power over nature. We should look at our storms through the eyes of faith, even if it decides not to calm your storm immediately. He has total control of the situation. Just you trust him. Join him for a nap. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. And we're always looking for people just like you to join in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.